1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. Hello. Perfect timing. Ma just left. Welcome to They Coined It. Hey, Roberta. Dan, have you seen the film Shirley, which is on Hulu, which is starring... I'm guessing no about your face. Uh, it's Elizabeth Moss as Shirley Jackson. I have an Aunt Shirley. Is it about her? Is your Aunt Shirley Jackson who wrote the lottery? That would uh-uh. be amazing. <laughs> no, that's why I thought it was weird. Yeah. When you said there was a show about my Aunt Shirley. That's crazy. No, this is a so this is a 2020 film, and I've been meaning to watch it for a while. Um, and I didn't I didn't know what to expect. It's um it's not it's fictional. It's like a fictional slice of biography. It's, it's a sort of, it's sort of like take the idea of someone and then tell an interesting story. And I got it. I don't, I, it it is, um, one of these wonderful, weird films. It's just, it's just incredible, uh, Elizabeth Moss character work. And, um, but this, but the story is, is fascinating. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lay it out for you. I just, I recommend. All right. Recommend. A lot of good stuff on Hulu. You cannot keep up with the streaming platforms. You, you, we all get pissed off every time there's another one and they yank something from here to put it over there. And turns out we freaking need them all. As my son binge watches Cobra Kai. Have you watched it? No. I just had two friends recommend it to me yesterday and I've been resisting it. And No, people love it. I had a friend really, 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 really give me 10 minutes on it yesterday, so I might. No, people like, because it moved to Netflix. It was on YouTube, right. which is sort of like, all right, I'm not 11 years old. I'm not going to like sit and watch a whole <laughs> series on YouTube. Um, but I think Netflix just bought it, so that's how things go now. You start out you know, f- filming something on your on your iPhone, and you put it on YouTube, and then Netflix buys it for like $50 million. So- who, who, who am I? What the hell do I know? Um, should upgrade your iPhone. That's true. I should. Um, a night to remember. Oh my goodness. Um, let's let's go right in because it is. Boy oh boy. Okay. A night to remember. Written by Robin Veith and Matthew Weiner. Directed by Leslie Linka Glotter. Original air date September fourteenth, two thousand eight, and takes place between approximately July twenty first and August fourth, nineteen sixty two. Um, impressions just top right off top of your head. So this is one of those episodes that has stuck with me for all the years without, you know, (laughs) um, I have to be reminded sometimes. And then I remember stuff about this show. And that's, that's why it's been (laughs) this wonderful journey of me. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. Um, and of course, rewatching this, there were things I re-remembered, but I never forgot. You say a night to remember to me, or you don't say it, and I will never forget Betty in that dress, and and Betty in that dress twenty four hours later, That's right. and Jones' bra strap wounds, and Father Gill and the guitar. The and guitar. The, the, I I say I say we touch on the three storylines: the um, Betty, Peggy, and Joan. But it is certainly Betty's journey. We've been building to this. We didn't know we were building to this. Um, we've spent the entire season with Don. Is he good? Is he trying to behave? And then he gets sucked into Bobby Barrett and 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 the scene in Gold Violin. Jimmy kind of hits her in the face with it. And now we're left to the Don and Betty marriage and how that plays out after that. So this is really a, a, a slickly done, um, completely 
this is what I call respecting the audience in the way mm. that people really work and think and operate. And um, it ends up cropping back up right, right here before our eyes. So we'll get into all that. But, um, you know, to me, that's the emotional heart of the episode. No question. Absolutely. And it, and it opens with, it opens with Betty back on the horse in her, in her fury, in her fury, you know, so. Um, processing. Processing and. And then getting back and it's done where you do this and then you do that. And he's kind of, sounds like you could do it. You know, he's kind of being a dick, which, you know, maybe if you're not cheating on your wife, you can get away with a little bit <laughs> um, here and there, but, but he's, He's incredible. He's completely um, dismissive. He's always cheating on his wife, so there's nothing new there. What's <laughs> right. different? What's different is that he she you knows. Know, he doesn't know that she knows. But it's also it's notably different from Marriage of Figaro, when that same honey do list was. He was much more resigned. Um, but that that moment actually, where where that that exchange about the the fixing the fixing the fuse, changing the fuse, whatever, changing yeah. the, the socket, whatever that was, uh, is a great window into where this marriage has progressed to up to this point mm-hmm. prior to this party, right? Yeah. So yeah. we'll leave it there. We'll come back to it. Peggy Olson. <laughs> you know, the theme I saw throughout this episode, and it's it's a theme that, um, it's a theme of Mad Men, is women's power getting challenged, taken away, <laughs> removed, women trying to live their power and 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 there's no place to do that in this in this world, right? Mm. With Peggy, she is asked, coerced by this man that she sort of really likes and sort of really respect, respects and also we already have discussed and seen that he's a manipulator. Mm. He may he yeah. may be the best of intentioned um, let me tell you something. My rabbi is really good at getting what needs to happen to happen. Like, no, like she's masterful. You have yeah. one conversation with her and the next thing you're on a committee. Yeah. You know, so like, it's not, it's not. It's not exclusive to the Catholic it's church. It's not exclusive to sure. the Catholic church. And it's not always yeah. a bad thing. I think I just colored it a little worse than I meant to by saying manipulative. Well, we, we, we get to the heavy handedness by the end of the episode, no question. Yeah, and we've that. seen it before, but part of it is right. just you're doing your job. You're kind of getting, yeah, you're no, getting no, no. people on board, you know? <laughs> yeah, I see you're not participating. What can yeah. we do? There's lots of ways to we do We have this. an ad we need done. Yeah. No, that that part I thought was totally, incredibly believable dialogue and, and exchange between a, a, a parishioner and, and the father. People ask people to do free work all the time. Can you just look at this for a minute? Turns into, well, send me your changes. And I, I thought I thought Father Go was pretty respectful. Like, think of it as pro bono. Talk to your boss. Like, he's looking to go through the channels. He's not looking to, to just um, glean. I mean, he will glean off Peggy if he can. But when she pushes back, he's he's respectful. Yeah, I thought so. I mean, it's it's again, it's a little. Now we need a meeting. Yeah, <laughs> you know. I mean, they're they're studying this this flyer like it's the Talmud. You know, for. <laughs> <laughs> for all these things, but that's yeah, you know, small town Brooklyn. You know the the 
the dances may as well be the coronation. But uh, but it's also it. I mean, I am on some committees for you know. I've been working on my temple's website. It's not that different. It's it's you bring it back to the board, and you can't believe the stuff they're challenging and they're asking about. And this is honestly, this is you know, part of your job in advertising is training your clients. Yeah. And every client, this this in some ways, this just represents any client mess of what well, can well, you pro bono is going to give you as yeah. much grief as yeah <laughs> exactly can you client. can you you know we'd like to see it we'd love we we'd love your expertise now can you change it to this this and this we you know it's 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 no different than pete writing a pete thinking he can write a tagline i'm just saying i'm not an expert but there might be another slogan this parallel where earlier in the episode we have don and duck kind of trading off you know, whose job is it to get the client on board discussion about Heineken, right? Where um, Duck basically comes down and says, look, you you need to sell it to them. You, this, is, this is the creative's job. Sell it to the client. I'll tee it up for you. We'll, see, well, I'll get you in a room. You know, it's always, I'll get you in a room. So he gets him in the room. And what we see with the Heineken thing is Duck teeing it up for Don. Uh, and they're talking about the dinner party and Duck's supporting them and you should see this guy and the wife and blah, blah, blah. And it works like a charm. I mean, the client's really kind of totally bites. That's the way Peggy sees everything she does, right? Because she's learning so much from Don. So when she's sitting there in, in some like side room at the, at the, uh, at the rectory or wherever they're sitting in the parish, uh, in the church, he's, uh, you know, Father God, I think, is doing his best to be kind of like, hmm, that's true. That's a good, you know, he's being very diplomatic right. about it. Peggy sees it as, no, Father Gill, you're my doc. You're, right. my, you're my account man. <laughs> exactly. you're, my, you're my wingman here. You got to bring this client around, you know, bring this baby in for the in for the landing. And Father Gill doesn't see it that way because, A, it's not his job. He, he, he thinks he has to walk both sides and and make everybody happy regardless. Uh so there's this, I found a great sort of learning lesson, life lesson from, for Peggy that not everything is a perfectly set up, you know, people, things are set up that way in business because uh, everybody knows the rules on that side. But when you're dealing with uh, Bay Ridge, the, the committee for the dance, the CYO, uh, the rules are not, a, people aren't respecting those rules quite so much. So it, it, there's a great, great mirror image there, I think, of the Heineken bit. Peggy in her position, she's the account man. She just doesn't know it. Well, she represents the entire process, but she's not used to representing the entire process. When you are put in that position, when you are one person right. sticking your neck out to to take on, you know, you really are. You're the one who has to manage the client. She didn't sign on for that. That she thought Father Gill was playing his right, role. Right, which was completely But he wasn't. Naive of her. <laughs> it was very naive of her. She didn't she didn't see the difference between whatever congregation she belongs to and um you know the imported beer <laughs> account that yeah. got like she's already to, she's already to play good cop bad cop and and father Gill yeah. just not a cop <laughs> a night to remember is every girl's dream it holds the wholesome promise of the kind of hand-holding that eventually leads to marriage i also thought the topic was quite interesting um a night to remember She's setting up this this romance. They're saying that seems a little racy. I mean, she's already done an innocent kid ad. Clarisil, the teenagers, 
Yeah, she's like stuck in adolescence, this girl. When in reality, she's had a night to remember, and it ended up... She wants to forget it. And she wants to forget it. It (laughs) it led to the sin they all, you know, the the, the sin they're all... It's You know, it's interesting. They're dancing. These women are dancing around this idea of we don't want anybody to get any impression that anybody is is permitted to fuck. And she's on top of... uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Why you know, people don't so that I just that was a little bit of an interesting um subtext happening. It takes us to getting Father Gill into the office at Sterling Cooper, which is fun and interesting. Um, with the nice little miracle whip joke from from Pete. Uh I was trying to think what other accounts could have fit into that joke. Did we get the church's chicken account? You know, like we could have, there could have been like 50 different brands you could you could slide in there. Well, for Miracle, Miracle Whip was pretty good, actually. Religious, religious themed accounts. You know, you, you, there's the joke about um, that Frank Perdue went to the Catholic Church years ago and said, listen, instead of give us this day our daily bread, we need to change it to chicken. Give us this day our daily chicken. And the, the Catholic Church says, it's the bedrock of our religion. People say that prayer all over the world. We're not changing bread to chicken. How can you do that? And he says, well, it's a sizable donation for the church if you do it. And he comes around to like a billion dollars. I'm going to give the church a billion dollars. And the guy and the Catholic church representative goes back to the college of Cardinals and says, oh, well, got good news and bad news. Well, we're, we're richer by a billion dollars. Thanks to Frank Purdue. The bad news is we're going to lose the wonder bread account. <laughs> that's the, that's the <laughs> right. So anyway, um, it does bring Father Gill back to, not back, it does bring Father Gill to the office, amazed by the wondrous copier machine. But it it puts, uh, physically and visually, it gives us this almost confessional, this almost confessional image of Father Gill sitting by Peggy's desk while she's working. Yes. And it not only, it looks like a confession. It absolutely looks like a confession, yes. Direction, which I'm sure it's meant to. And Father Gill wants to make it a literal confession. And this is where the line gets crossed. As if it hadn't been already, but yeah. Right. I mean, but in, in within this episode, within this storyline, because that's right, he already crossed the line. But this, you know, when it went to something innocuous and that I would compare to my own wonderful rabbi to this is vile. Ugh. But the way he, he brings it about is I know you're not, you don't take communion. That's right. He came up with. My hook. Which is interesting compared with the Don and Betty story. Don's like, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? Again, we'll get, we'll go there. But that Father Gill came up with the perfectly seamless, foolproof, no, of course. It's chapter three in the book of how to be a father, right? (laughs) How to be a priest. I totally could have figured this out myself. You didn't. But once he does and he introduces the topic, I mean, it, it, it occurred to me is just how this, I guess it's a sacrament of uh, confession is a sacrament, right? One of the, whatever it is, handful of sacraments in the Catholic religion is giving you're your looking, confession. You're looking to me like I even know. I might be pulling this out of my butt, but I'm pretty sure. It's like marriage, confession, blah, blah, blah. Literally whatever. don't know what you're, I literally don't know what. The point is this. <laughs> when you take communion, it means by definition that you have, recently given your confession, right? You can't, if you have sins that you've committed, you can't take communion, which means everybody in the church sees who isn't taking communion. 
<laughs> Everybody in the church knows who hasn't gone to confession in the past week or so, or however long it takes to commit a bunch of sins, I guess. But the point is, anyone who's go who goes up for that communion has recently given confession or hasn't sinned since their last confession. So you see who doesn't take it. And so there's this community pressure that's built in there to, to be seen going up and taking communion. But the only way you can go do that is if you've told someone, another human being, all the horrible things you've done and thought and committed. So there's no, there's no getting out of like being privately repentant. You're outed You're one, outed way, or one another. way or another. Right. Yeah. There's no private re re uh, um, uh, penance. There's no private remorse, which would seem to me be, to be just as valid. But the Catholic Church says, you got you to gotta tell us, you got to give up the goods. You got to tell us what it's all about. To me, there is something so, I don't know. I know it's been around for thousands of years, so what the hell do I know? But, like, there's something so incredibly socially manipulative about that. Forget about Peggy and Father Gill, but Father Gill's leaning on it very heavily at this moment. But the, the, the sacrament in general, the way it's constructed, is meant to control the community. We know, we know what you've done and we'll bring it up to you. You know, it's, a, it's sort of like the mafia in a sense, right? Like we don't have to threaten because we know you have, you know, we have the goods on you. And I don't know, that just seems to me to be a corrosive, corrosive type of practice to be constantly going around. Who knows what? What do people know about me? I'm exposed either way. And he's sitting there like just, digging that shiv into her under this pretense of I'm here to help you, for God's sake. I mean, it, it, it's breathtaking to me. The Catholic Church has not done so well with their, with their methodologies of, of how they manage sin. It's, it's like you either have to confess it or you have to lie about it. And what does that lead to? A culture of suppression and organized crime, frankly. Oh, and they've already given you hell and fire and brimstone and made you scared, you know, scared to death of of what happens. Again, this is this is not my area of expertise, but just observationally from what I know in the world. That's all that's all it is for me too. Dated a Catholic girl in college. That's where I learned half of it. <laughs> you know, it's just how's this all going for you? I mean, it's that I think that aspect of it that you're identifying, which is one way or another, the you need to be publicly outed regarding your sinning. Or 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 lack of um Confession to those sins. Yeah. Which means you're holding sins because we saw you not go up. Leaves you um, scarlet lettered. You're a smart, beautiful young girl. You have so much to offer. Do you feel you don't deserve his love? So you've got Peggy just trying to live her life. She goes to her sisters. She gets asked to do this favor. It turns into a whole thing. She's trying to do the right thing, express her um, her professionalism, frankly. She gets kind of shot down there. Um, now in the office, in, in her, now we're in her domain. We're not in the church anymore. We're, we're, we're in her her little 
corner on her turf and her little corner, literal corner of the world in the room with the Xerox machine. Um, and he just, he just moves in for the kill. And it is not how he sees it, but in terms of her, her own, her own sense of power, her own sense of I'm living my life, I'm doing things my way. He just makes her in whatever, for whatever he's trying to bring out of her for what he sees as her own good. She's just withering, which we see at, you know, we see it and we see it in real time. I mean, the one thing that he says that that is some genuine insight is you live with these kind, you know, you live with these kind of secrets, you're pushing people away. Now he doesn't, he has no evidence that she's pushing people away. He, he doesn't, he's, he's not out with her every night seeing who she is or isn't dating. No, but he believes she's pushing the church away. That's his observation. Right. But he does, he ties it back to, you push the church away, you push God away, you're pushing humans away. And, and he's, and he's right. He got her. Like he, he nailed it. And she's just withered and crushed. So in, in, you know, just in this theme of these women and, and, where they are with their power and a real loss of power. He, he successfully achieved, <laughs> uh, crushing her, um, and leaving her feeling no power at all. Joan Holloway. Oh, this storyline, this storyline just, so a couple things. Um, I noted way back when in long weekend, Joan mentions loving language. And the reason that stood out for me then was because I knew this was coming. So, and I had not noticed it any, any other viewing back then. That's great. So Franklin, you're into language. Yes. Well, it's kind of a hobby of mine. I do carpentry. I'm building a dry sink. I love language. Words, no ways. <laughs> Joan also has a love of pop culture. 1960, I'm so over you. She talks about movies and the apartment and and then same episode, she overly identifies with the apartment such that she is furious at Roger for <laughs> right. a movie. So she's got both of those things. It combines into this skill set. This is just one of those wonderful, just a separate from the show. You know, you don't know a job until you find out you're good at it. You don't know a skill set. You know, you suddenly you find yourself reading scripts. She's just handed this responsibility. And she says what? It sounds fun. It sounds fun. Right. Doesn't sound like work. This is the same woman who doesn't understand why Peggy wants to be a writer, right? <laughs> but all of right. it, but this just doesn't even sound like work. This just sounds like fun. And she's incredibly gifted at it and gifted at what? Who knew? Looking through scripts to make, to connect these dots. Like she's, she's recognizing patterns that now add value. Again, you couldn't, you couldn't have prescribed this. You couldn't have seen this coming. You know what I'd be good at? Looking through scripts and figuring out what advertising would and wouldn't work. In a million years. In a million years. So here she is and she's doing it on it. And then we go, we see her at home. We've never seen this relaxed. Joan in casual wear. Yeah. And kind of curled up on the couch and spread out. And this is the first we're seeing of this, of this relationship, which his quote was, Joni, you should be watching those shows, not reading them with a box of bonbons on your lap to soothe your cravings. So that's obviously you should be pregnant. <laughs> and, but also it reminded me also of what she said to Sheila White. Someday, you know, you're, you shouldn't be watching the shows. You should be 
you should not be reading them. You should be watching them is right up there. You should be working there. You should go there as a customer. You should go there as a customer. Exactly. So she, you know, she's really dug her own grave with this, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't like when he says that to her, Mm -hmm. but, but this is, this is what she's been prescribing for others and for herself. This is the narrow view she has had of herself. Then we meet with the client. She pitches to the client. She's just so natural with it. She's not going, I'm going to pitch to the client. How am I going to do? She's just perfect. Just perfect. It is so natural to her. Right. And everyone she meets on the planet is horribly sexist. (laughs) Just, just as a matter of. (laughs) Devastatingly distracted and, and, and by her looks and feeling absolutely. Yeah. The Maytag people in the lobby and then the, uh, the other folks in the, in the conference room. Just yeah. Feeling absolutely another. no, no, uh, having no quarrel with saying it. Like, you know, there's no, there's no self-consciousness about that. We don't say <sighs> these things. We do. Right. No, we could, I could say this, you know, and then there's the whole Harry journey, which, which I'm not going to get into, but that is parallel, you know, the Harry's piece of this and the, it instigates all this. Yeah. And the wonderful scenes with Harry and, and Roger, which I could watch those over and over. <laughs> but, but it's as if, it's as if Joan is, feeling a contradiction that she hasn't articulated. She feels it, though. It doesn't get even articulated for herself until it gets taken away from her. She was content to not be paid for this. I mean, it would have taken a year or two until she finally said, okay, I'm doing all this. I'm doing a whole other job, right? right she would have kept right. doing it because she was in in love with it and doing it and adding value. And it wasn't until some nudnik show, shows up and gets hired to do this job. And, and she not only sees that he's not going to be as good at it, but that Harry doesn't have any clue the value. Uh, he doesn't, Harry doesn't see the difference between how he saw the job of avoiding problems and what Joan did, which was actually find opportunities. She up-leveled the whole A thing. more aware Harry would say, how do I keep Joan doing this? Because she makes my whole department, you know, smell better, look better, better face to the client. Everything, every part of this whole vague idea I had to create this department is better with Joan doing it somehow. It's going to make money. You know, she was hired to keep Sterling Cooper. She was hired rather. She was brought in to do the, to perform this function to keep Sterling Cooper from losing money. And she ends up finding, again, finding these opportunities. So that, I mean, just that last, that last moment of these actresses, all three of them in this episode, the look on her face when that power in Harry's office. Yeah. In Harry's office. The, the There's several looks. She goes through it's several. It's heartbreaking. It's devastating. Yeah. She yeah. is so not valued. And she has no power at all. She has no power at all. And as you can see her kind of kicking herself for unwittingly and against her own judgment, getting her hopes up. She was looking forward to the next story or the next script. She was looking ahead. You'll never guess what's going to happen. But she was all really wrapped up in it against, you know, she didn't try to be. She just naturally was. And then she kind of regretted on her face. That's what I saw on the face was, was how could I, how could I have gotten caught up in this? Up until that moment, didn't even think of it as a a whole job that she could have and do and excel at until it gets given to a junior level man uh, who 
of course, was qualified because he's a man rather than because of how excellent he would be at it, which she was. Well, they saw it as an interchangeable part, right? Which is what companies often do. Was, all right, jo- someone proved that this is a thing. Now we'll have someone do the thing. Joni, you can go back yeah. to doing what she did. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. All right, let's um, let's take a quick break and we will come back and talk about Betty Draper. So, Betty Hofstadt Draper. Mm-hmm. You know, her character has been drawn since day one as this kind of Barbie doll, Grace Kelly look, you know, this this perfect model wife, literally was a model, that from the outside is lives this kind of dream existence. And in some ways she does, but the marriage, of course, is rotten from the middle out. So the way that it crops up in this episode isn't that kind of smack in the face the way Bobby, excuse me, Jimmy Barrett did at the store club talking about this affair and she's offended and blah, 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 walks away. But it sneaks up on her in this, you know, it's like when you, it's like when you live with someone who's unstable and, and you go, oh, if I didn't say that thing, they wouldn't have snapped at me. They wouldn't have, it wouldn't have triggered them that way. And what you don't realize for a long time is, um, hey, buddy, something was going to trigger that person. <laughs> if it wasn't that that thing you did today, it would have been that thing next Tuesday. <laughs> There's That trigger is out there going to happen. So for Betty, you insulted me, you embarrassed me about what you knew I was going to do and buy for you, and isn't it funny? And, Don, you're cheating. <laughs> it's... If it wasn't that, it would have been something else. It could have been that dining room chair that she demolished. It was going to be something. Betty has been angry for a long time. Mm. Betty has been angry as long as we know her, with her hands going numb in the second episode of the series. There's another one who feels it before she can articulate it, right? So Betty's been dealing with her anger, and Betty has been suffering humiliations from finding out that her husband is in cahoots with her therapist, from finding out that at least how her neighbor sees things, it's obvious that her husband cheats from Don not going to Thanksgiving. And then as we've talked about so many times, there's this big gap. There's this 14 months where we don't know what's gone on in this marriage, but we see a different marriage from where we left off. And and on the face. In terms of the distribution of power, that honey, will you fix the hoodinky is a perfect example of that, how that's so different from how it was in Marriage of Figaro, where he's, he's hey, bossy McBosserson, why don't you fix it yourself? And, and, her, have, and her suffering, no, she's just not, she don't feel like playing. She's like, no, you're, we're getting this done. She's, she's expressing a lot more resentment about having to do this perfect party than she did um, the crazy perfect party she did for a five, a six-year-old, right? So, you know, all, all the dynamics are, are subtly or not subtly different. And that's all or primarily a function of Betty's anger starting to get expressed, or at least Betty's, Betty's no longer sucking up the role that she, to your point, that, that, you know, Betty is the perfect wife, Betty is the Grace Kelly. She's still going to do it, but she doesn't have to like it so much. 
That seems to be where we start. And if we look at where we really start, it's on that horse where she rides it with this purpose, fury and purpose. And, and she's getting something out. And then, (laughs) uh, Betty always looking for love in all the wrong places, loving on that horse at the end. Like she wanted a love on Glenn, (laughs) you know, I mean, she really, I mean, it was a really beautiful thing. Her, 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 her hugging up to that horse. It was, it was beautiful, but it's also like, she just, she has no place to put her, her release, but you're right. She is a fight wanting to happen. She is right on the edge. It would be easy to put it on Jimmy Barrett. And it might be, that might actually be it. But it's been building overall. There's been all these other touch points and red flags that she's sort of willfully ignored. Jimmy Barrett told her what she has been trying as hard as she can not to know. And talk about unarticulated truths. It's It's like when you hear something that you know in your gut is true, even if you can make the argument that it's not true, it might be something that you can actually prove. Like she tried to go through his, his, his suits and find evidence and came up, but that didn't deter her. She wasn't, she, she didn't, she didn't go, huh, maybe I, maybe I played my cards all wrong here to me. That that's an important part of this process for Betty is that, that that spine is now steel because she heard the truth and she, it rang true with her. No matter. She, she didn't question at all what Jimmy said. She knew in her gut, it was true. I want to come back to that. I want to come back to their their final confrontations. I remember you, Sally. Hello. And who do we have here? This is Bobby. Bobby, shake Mr. Phillips' hand. You like baseball, Bobby? But let's go back to the dinner party. Because it's a wild, it's a wild little cast of characters, starting with, <laughs> with Sally's performance and right. the child and the children saying goodnight so politely. I love the shaking hand. That is shaking that hands. Is... They've been taught. Crab, who knew Crab was coming back into our yeah, lives, right. right? And his wife, Petra. Now, I got to say two things about Petra. One is, we've all seen that person. Oh, my God. <laughs> I used to work with a woman, and we all adored her, but we could hear in her stories, we could just hear the way she spoke, that she was mm. a drunk. <laughs> and one of one of my coworkers got married and we all were there and they started drinking hours and hours before the part the wedding and they were that they were like we always take over the dance floor you know there's always a petra they they exist right it's a, it's a different kind of lack of awareness around substance abuse in this case you're revealing way too much about yourself when you <laughs> sort of is it an open bar you know. Yeah, and you tr- and you and you're trying to pass it all off as normal. Yeah, that th- that you're no different than anybody else. Yeah, yeah, we all we all bump into walls, and we all the time, and we all yeah. Right, or when Duck passes on the drink, oh come on, <laughs> tone it down. Duck dealing with his own thing, right? So that's Petra. Now Petra, I had to look her up. She looked a little familiar, and she hadn't looked a little familiar before. She is um, Amy Landecker. I know her best from Transparent, where she's. In- incredible and kind of loopy and kind of wonderful. I assume, although I could be wrong, that that's where she met Bradley Whitford. She was also on one episode of Handmaid's Tale, also with Bradley Whitford, and they are now married. Oh, wow. And I love him and I love her. I mean, she was such, her performance was incredible, but I was like, oh, wait, she's familiar. So that's fun. So I just wanted to mention, mention that. 
the formality of that dinner party is so <laughs> science fiction to me. If you wish, you can leave your drinks here and join us in the dining room. And I, what I can't tell is, is Betty a little old fashioned? You know, is it a little weird to everyone? Is, are, is anybody in that room thinking, you don't have to be this fancy? Oh, I think that's of the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't. I mean, you say that, but no, you, how I many dinner parties did you go to in 1960? I'm just. I, I don't know. Think, I think formal entertaining in the in that in that time, 50s and 60s, kind of loosened up. I think probably by the 70s, but maybe not that much. I remember dinner parties in the 70s. There was nothing like that happening. I mean, we now we were not wasps. Yeah, I think I think you know. Please jo join us in join who? It's, there's nobody in there. Join us in the join us in the dining room. I think that was all part of it. She's got the the international menu, and we're going around the world and rumaki. I mean, that was. I mean, none of that stuff would raise an eyebrow now. It wouldn't even classify as an international dinner, to be honest. An international nope. menu. Because we have a Heineken. <laughs> no, but, but it made but it made you think just about how parochial uh, mid-century America was in in just an interesting, fascinating way to me. To where uh, what was oh it was gazpacho? <laughs> was, you know now I get my deli. my deli makes a great gazpacho in the summer. You know that is our second cold soup because vichyssoise. Oh, there you go. <laughs> right. Those are the two um, I know. So she starts with that, and then it was rumaki, and what else was there? There was something else thrown in there. Oh, the egg noodles from from Germany. From Germany. <laughs> it's like, really? Egg noodles? That classifies? Okay, well, you know, whatever. But look, I think that for that time, that was that was a whole thing, right? They even referenced it. Like, oh, we're going to use her menu verbatim in the, in the Ladies' Home Journal ad or whatever. But that was exotic. That was exotic. So I think the formality of it, it was, that was her, that was her time to shine. I understand that. I just don't know. Listen, sometimes Betty's a little off. Um, you know, Betty, remember Betty showing up in that big fancy dress for the modeling gig compared yeah. to what the younger, you know, is, is Betty in 1962 being a little bit 1958? That's all. And I don't know the answer. My guess is that in 62 with, with Roger and Mona and Crab and Petra in her living room, she's in her element. She's going to hit the right note every time i don't know the answer i i wondered i wondered okay. is it that she's hitting the right note or that she thinks she's hitting the right note like it's not so weird that they're all like who this bitch but <laughs> they they might have the thought of like really do the speech this like i'm just wondering episode title <laughs> who this bitch who this bitch well, I mean, ultimately, the idea that she'd gone to great lengths and hired Carla to come help the the dinner and everything this was clearly a, a big deal. We still don't know. We still don't really know what Crab Colson does for for Sterling Cooper and all this. Like he's with Roger and Cowan. Who cares? What it's a PR agency. Like we're still wondering. Structurally, I thought it was interesting too. The dinner party a little bit snuck up on us. Even at the beginning of the episode, we didn't really know. You know, they start with the fight over the, will you fix the socket? They didn't, it just wasn't announced in the episode. There wasn't a lot of exposition on it. I felt a little snuck up on, and I feel like so did Betty, even though Betty was obviously prepped for it. I feel like I was taken a little bit on the emotional journey of, wait, holy, all of a sudden we're hosting a party? In most shows, right, it would have been, Don, you're having all your important friends over on Friday night. And I need that hot plate ready. You know, she would have done a whole a whole speech about it. Duck 
alluded to it also. Again, it was light. It was a light touch. But uh, we're going to have a date, and I'm going to go stag, and blah, blah, blah. Um, so there were a couple reference points. But, yeah, it wasn't. It, it, it just sort of happened. So, Betty, this is what happened to set her off. If it was not this, it would have been something else. It, you know, I, I love that um, that quiet scene, that silent scene of her demolishing that living room chair with the kids watching her, kind of like, <laughs> what's what's wrong with mommy? It didn't surprise me as much watching this time, and I don't mean because I've seen her demolish that chair before so much as I really saw the anger on the horse in a different way, and I really saw the anger in the conversation about the socket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I saw a seething Betty from the jump. What once was surprising is now inevitable, and that is definitely one of those things. I, I think that the concept of the, the dinner probably riled her. All these little things leading up to the dinner riled her. So it's not, it's not crazy that what ultimately is, I think, a misinterpreted slight on her part with the Heineken bit is what triggers her. But it could have been, but it could have been any of those things. She was probably in her heart, frankly, waiting to get past the dinner. The minute that dinner's over, the next thing that happens in my life is going to come down on Don like a ton of bricks. The clock's ticking on this on this marriage at this point. So she confronts him and it starts with you embarrass me, you embarrass me, you embarrass me. And clearly that is analogous to you embarrass me, right? But then she finally says, You're cheating. You're you're sleeping with that woman. That's a threshold you cross and you can't uncross it. Yeah. And it takes everything to say it, to get those words out, which is why her starting with the rage of you humiliated me propels her. It gives her the wind to get her to the real. That's right. The real. What, what she really feels humiliated about. Buying the right beer and not knowing it is not humiliating. It's it's just a jumping off point to. Yep to what I'm really humiliated about. And he didn't really, he didn't really super set her up. Set her up at all. He could have been like, uh, go get some beer. See if you could pick out a beer. He could have done any, you know, he didn't, he didn't. Betty, I can't talk to you when you're like this. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. I know about you and that woman. Coming back to this moment, you've got this confrontation. You've got Betty finally saying what's there. And you've got Don so skilled at deny, deny, deny. This is where I got to tell you my respect for Betty Draper in this episode. Mm-hmm. He's the perfect gaslighter. And, and this is what cheaters do. Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? You can't prove it. So it, you're, you're crazy. He never says you're crazy, but she takes herself <laughs> there. Well, she's, he might be the perfect gaslighter, but she's the perfect gaslightee. She's been in this state of denial for years. That is the... One of the bases of their marriage is this oblivion that she lives in. But not today. He didn't, he didn't think it was ending today. <laughs> I mean, this is what's so amazing about this. She is undaunted by her lack of evidence. And she even, you know, how, did, how do you know? Finally, she, all right, fine. Jimmy, Jimmy Barrett told me. You're going to believe him? What exactly? She's like, I'm not doing this with you because you're going to yeah. pick apart my words. And, and, and you know, you could see her fate in her face, her losing, her losing ground a little bit in those moments. And then she's like, nope. And she remains through the rest of the episode absolutely undauntable. Fine, that's What do you know? Go 
ahead. Tell me. Jimmy told me everything. <laughs> Jimmy. He hates me. He told me everything. Oh, please. What the hell did he say? So you can pick it apart? Twist all my words? I'm not gonna dignify Jimmy Barrett with a response. He's a big mouth. And don't pretend I don't know how he looks at you. I saw you two together. And she, we watch the journey. We watch her going through and searching for evidence, and she doesn't find it, and it, she doesn't care. She's done. Because Jimmy Barrett told her the truth, and she knew it was the truth. That's right. In her gut. Jimmy Barrett didn't give her evidence. And, ra and when Don lies to her, rather than take that as evidence that maybe she's wrong, she takes that as evidence that he is a fucking liar. Well, the, the, the pieces all fit together in a much different way now. They create a much different picture. And she sees it that she didn't see before. She didn't ask Jimmy Barrett to prove it to her, nor did she just gullibly accept it. She just, she just knew. And this steel has been, has been forming in her spine since at least then, maybe sooner. She says, I saw the two of you. And that sounds like I saw you fucking or I saw you kissing, but she's saying the same, I saw the two of you just like Jimmy did, saying, look at them, look at the two of them. That's her point of reference, right? They're over there and they don't care where we are. It's not like they're talking about evidence or I found this or I heard a phone call or blah, blah, blah. It was just, I've just heard the truth and now I know. And what am I going to do with that? And that's been building and building and building. And it just happened to be imported beer at the supermarket, you know, that he kind of thought I'd buy. The fact that it wasn't a setup about the beer and that it was so under the radar, like we didn't even know it was a thing until she made it a thing, highlights just how this has been building for her from a, from like a, from like a script structural standpoint. They could have given Robin Vice and Matthew Weiner could have made it a legit, more legitimate humiliation, yeah. a more legitimate setup, a more legitimate something. Hey, du hey, duck, I know my wife. Wait till you see, like, she didn't even know, but I've totally laid the trap for her. Uh -huh. What was more important was for her to only need to be a little bit triggered to have it all start to tumble. She was, and, and they didn't, they didn't embarrass her at the dinner party. They, it wasn't a, they let her in on the joke, like, oh, you, there was this thing and they're a client and, you know, a duck kind of did the whole thing. But they didn't, they were respectful toward her. They weren't keeping her, they weren't being exclusive about it. It was the kind of thing you'd chuckle about. They weren't laughing really at her at all, right? Now, I would like to talk about her clown dress. Speaking of laughter. <laughs> That's right. Like, I amused you like a clown. There was, there was, there was an element of that. And that, that costume, that's one of the iconic Mad Men costumes and, and how, what they did with her. First of all, that perfect, that dress was so perfect and beautiful, right. but, but it is, it messages clown. Yeah. It's clownish. How she doesn't take it off. I found that relatable, understandable. Like you don't want to, it's like you have to preserve what's happening. You, if, 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 if I shower, if I take this off before I'm ready, this whole thing ends. I put it behind me and I'm not ready to put it behind me. Well, it's a night to remember. I'm, <laughs> I'm staying in the night. Like the, I'm, the, the, there, there is, the, the time has not, the sun came up, but it is still last night. That's exactly it. She, it's frozen and it's, she freezes herself in time as it deteriorates around her, as she deteriorates, she gets drunk, she's stepping on glass. She's, she's, just, a, she's just, a, just a wreck. Mess. And then she, um, she finally is ready and she, she realizes she's not going to find any evidence. 
and she's just, she's tired. She's tired of it. And she showers and we have never seen Betty Draper look as unadorned as we do when she comes in and with her hair wet and down, it's not in curlers. She's not preparing for the next moment. She's just Betty, no makeup, a slim white robe, ready to speak to her husband, but not ready to, to take him back without, without the truth. That's the condition. Yeah. Now there was a theme that I noticed. Um, she kept saying, you, it, so there's, you embarrassed me, Don saying, what did I do? You knew I would buy that beer. So what? Because you know me so well, you know, everything about me. So there's, there's this accusation of, oh, you know me so well, which part of that could come from, I mean, there's, there's simply the fact that they're kind of strangers inside this marriage, but there's also the, you've been, you've been in cahoots with my therapist. It's sort of the, the deep structure of humiliation. I'm seen, but I can't see. Mm. I can't see you as well as you see me. And I'm humiliated here and I'm exposed, even though I've done nothing wrong. I didn't know I was part of this little game of yours. But I think that humiliation is what connects all these things, right? That's why I say it was something was going to trigger her because when you walk around feeling humiliated in general by your marriage, by your husband, every little thing feels like a deeper humiliation to you until, until things explode which is what happened. And she says it again. You never mean it. You just do whatever you want. And I put up with it because nobody knows. You think you know me? Well, I know what kind of a man you are. And she really does know him. He says, you think I would sleep with that woman? She she says, you can't help yourself. I mean, that is, that was, that was dead on. Which is kind of like saying, I don't care who it was. It was everyone. It was, it was going to be, so you can't help yourself. The the woman in, in question is kind of irrelevant, Don, which she doesn't know how true that is. Her fixation with youth and beauty and her own youth and her own beauty. <laughs> she's so old. She's like, she's so old. Like it, it mattered a little. <laughs> that is why the writing is so great. No, <laughs> there is no other show that would make that the line that someone says when they're accusing their spouse of cheating. She's so old. Like, cause to Betty, that, that really is the defining characteristic of a Bobby Barrett somehow. <laughs> it's amazing. Old is a deal breaker for her. Betty expects that he's going to be cheating with, with 19 year olds. Right. Yeah. Those, those, uh, those echoes of you, you know, you don't know me and you think you know me and all that. So the next day in the meeting with the client, Duck basically playing up that Betty was the test, even though it really does seem, there's no evidence that that was deliberate in any way. It just turned out that way. Um, That's really- using it, which is- And Duck is using it because that's what Duck does. And, you know, well, he used it well. The client says, not exactly scientific, although it sounds like you do know your wife. (laughs) That jumped out at me. And then also- the client says, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, to Don. And so I take your word on this. And Don says, why would I lie? Which I just, that was just, you know, that's just one of those beautifully echoey, echoey things. Hello? Don't come home. What? I don't care what you do. I just don't want you here. Betty. Don? 
I don't want to see you. That was a night to remember. And we got some quotes coming up. And I have a little, I have a little story about that dress. So we'll be right back. This episode aired in September of 2008. Summer of 2009, my sister, madman blogger extraordinaire at that time in her life. She's in an airport and she sees a little girl and she chases the woman and the little girl down to ask where she got her dress. And I will post the link in show notes to the blog post about this, but it is this little girl wearing a dress that she got in Target, (laughs) which is almost identical to the polka dotted dress. Uh, The belt, I think, is a different color and it's small for a child. (laughs) It's like practically. (laughs) So, you know, we we don't get into a lot the, you know, we're talking about the episodes as they are. And, and we don't talk too much about the cultural uh, impact that Mad Men had. And my God, it, I mean, it, it changed fashion for a few years. It, it, you know, but that particular dress, you started to see it everywhere. <laughs> and it's just, it's just funny. It's just wild. And it's very, very pretty. I mean, my goodness, I love that dress. All right, Dan, what's your quote? So I, this quote I love more for the placement and the way that it calls back uh, when after Betty's called Don out and she's watching TV with the kids, and I think she has a magazine in her hand, and that original Utz commercial comes on in the middle of whatever the kids are watching and Jimmy Barrett does the spiel about nice place and they got nuts in here and blah, blah, blah. And that line that did just completely washes away the first time we hear it when it's when we see the commercial being produced now stuck out to me which was jimmy barrett and among his the line read for the the commercial says am i crazy i don't think so Mm. and he already he already he already laid the truth on betty in person off camera and now he's laying the truth on betty (laughs) Uh, through this commercial, which of course, you know, is just some weird kind of serendipity. But I don't know, to me that doing it that way, it just, God, it's just wonderful. Just amazing. She really took a journey toward crazy too. And I, I don't I don't mean cra- crazy is such an offensive term, but she, she really, she let herself go so far down the tunnel that if mental illness were the, were available to her, she could have stayed there. And fortunately, it were inducible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or if it was, or if it was lurking for her, which, which you know, it, she's sort of at an age where that that can happen. She really went all the way there, and she could have not come back. The no, the no showering. <laughs> Go back and watch Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really do recommend it, and that is about a woman really dealing with mental illness. And, and the condition of, you know, that, that Betty started to put herself into and allowing herself to just be with the gruesome yeah. misery. Um, you know, again, had there been a lurking mental illness, Betty, Betty could have not come back from it. Um, and she did. She came back really strong. Great point. So am I crazy? I don't think so. <laughs> Spoken by Jimmy Barrett. Okay, Roberta, you're, you're lying. We didn't talk about the ending of the episode. 
the ending of the episode with Kip from Bosom Buddy's Son <laughs> with, uh, with Father Gill singing with his guitar oh, and, and then, God. you know, morphing into, you know, the actual Peter, Paul and Mary recording. And you've got Joan again with the bloodied shoulder bearing the weight of the world in her loss of power and what she has to make herself be to live this life, which is again, these three women. So I, I feel like the ending of this episode is very much the ending of the beginning of maiden form, which opens with a montage of mm-hmm. these same three women. You've got Betty and Joan and Peggy and their bras and their what they're putting on to get ready for the world. Now here we are several episodes later and it's really all deconstructed. When Father Gill starts uh he whips out the guitar and starts singing. First of all, it's a it's a it's a minor callback. They they only alluded to it. Oh, you play guitar, you play what is a harmonica or something. It says guitar. So we kind of know he plays, but we don't know that it really matters or that we're gonna get to see him play. It doesn't seem like something really relevant. So not only is it really relevant, but they put it in this context of you know what he sees as his struggle, which we talked about the exchange with Peggy and how different sides of that play very differently for the two parties. But in a million years, in two million years, in 10 million years, I would not have linked Don's struggle to be a better person. Let's, if we're being charitable, we could call it that, with that struggle for a father Gill. Mm. And by, by going from his playing on his bed and his kind of, whatever temporary room that he has at the church and pairing that with Don suddenly no place to go staying at the office and grabbing a Heineken <laughs> in the break room or wherever. I mean, while that music continues to play, it was both like, Whoa, I, you could never have put those two together. And yet there is this sort of cosmic link that puts them in the same category somewhat of, you know, lost souls or, or people with a struggle which is what that song is about. None of this was where I was going, and I do have a quote to get to, but... We got, we got wonderfully off topic there, which was great. Don Draper, better than a lot of men, knows how to find a hotel room in New York City. The fact that he didn't, like he... he it's kind of his own version of... This is really good. I just got this of freezing, freeze framing the moment, not wanting, if I leave this office and go to a hotel, then that really happened. I got asked not to come home. So sort of his own version of staying in the dress. Okay. But my quote was about, (laughs) was about any of that. No, it it has to do with the first part of it, which is about the women. So, you know, we've, we talked about the male gaze in a different episode and you and you've got so much of it in this episode as a, particularly as it relates to Joan everybody feels this freedom to comment on how they are dazzled how you know they're in, like about it's not even her like there's the her part but then there's the like i'm powerless around you i should have mm. i should have combed my hair before getting on the phone it's all about yeah. you know it's like when somebody dies I just stopped. It's like when somebody dies and they're like, oh, my first crush died. Fuck you. That's not who she was, <laughs> right? Yeah. It has nothing to do with her. And yeah. um, you've probably said it. I've said it. Like, but it is, it is a it is a weirdness in a switch of where the focus should be. Point is, Warren saying to Harry about Joan, <laughs> she's so much woman. 
She's so much woman. She's so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That was perfect line reading. You know, the reason I chose that is because she is so much woman. Oh, yeah. And nobody cares. She's so much woman. She's got so much competency. She's got so much to give. She's got so much creative talent. And we got to wipe that fucker's drool off his chin. <laughs> but the fact is, Joan is so much woman. They can't handle it. And they don't care. In that same scene, by the way, when Joan's sort of coming to Harry and says, like, um, you know, Mr. Sterling said you needed help with your, your extra work or something. You know, he's watching TV. And while she reads that line, she glances at the TV saying, like, mm. your extra work. <laughs> like, like, right. <laughs> and it's kind of unfair <laughs> because that is kind of Harry's job is to watch a lot of TV. <laughs> but the way Joan reads that, that, uh, that line is, is really great because she's sort of like, undercutting the fact that he's supposedly busy by the fact that he's watching TV. But um, I wish we had more of Warren. I wish we could <laughs> see Boy, what I don't. Warren works on. <laughs> Roger Sterling's coming. He puts the Sports Illustrated away. He seems like a real comer, that guy. He's Don't sleep on Warren. Well, you never know. He could be in next week's episode, six-month leave. Could, it could be a whole Warren. You know, you never know who from the background is going to suddenly be prominent on Mad Men. Warren could be, it could be Warren's uh, Warren Palooza. <laughs> All right. So that was a podcast to remember. hey <laughs> We will good. see everybody later. Thanks again. Thank you. Ciao. If you're enjoying our show, please give us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts and share the show on social media. And if you're able to support us, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash they coined it. We've got some extra content there for you. We love hearing from our listeners. You can send your thoughts or questions to questions at tcimadmenpod.com or check in with us on Twitter and Instagram at tcimadmenpod. We're just at the beginning. We can't wait to discuss more Mad Men with you and continue bringing in special guests. Thank you so much, and we'll see you on the next episode.